Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Nature Biotechnology's First Rounders podcast. I'm the host, Brady Huggett, and the guest for this show is Rachel King. She's the CEO and president of Glycomimetics, and until very recently was the chairwoman of Bio, the Biotechnology Innovation Organization. They just changed their name. It used to be Biotechnology Industry Organization. The acronym stays the same, Bio. Um, anyway, Rachel was in New York, and I brought her into the studio, and we talked about uh, gene therapy. One of the companies that Rachel worked at early in her career was a gene therapy company. Uh, we talked about postponing an IPO, something that she has experience with. And we talked about Dartmouth, how, how and why she chose Dartmouth as her undergraduate school. This is the last First Rounders podcast to be recorded in the studio. Uh, when we took over this lease, there actually was not a space for podcast recordings, um, audio recording at all, video recording. And we made one. And I, I say we, but uh, I had nothing to do with it. We, it looks like we found a utility closet, cut some pipes out of it, uh, strung black um, styrofoam soundproofing on all the walls. And, you know, when, when you're closed in here, it's, it gives pretty good audio. But it always felt like it is a grim black space. And I, I would bring these guests in. And, you know, I wasn't sure if I was doing an interview or some sort of, you know, police interrogation. Uh, so anyway, that's the last one of these. The next one that I do in studio will be at our new location, which is at the southern tip of Manhattan. So Rachel King is the final First Rounders podcast from this studio. Enjoy. Did you grow up in New England? Well, I was born in Boston, um, and my family moved to New Jersey briefly, and then to Ohio for about 10 years until I was in ninth grade, ah. then back to New Jersey. So moved around a bit. So how did up. you end up going to, I mean, just Dartmouth because you... Because it's a good school? Uh, you know, I, um, well, when I was applying to colleges, I visited colleges, and it's, it's funny the way you make these decisions. I actually visited Dartmouth um, right before homecoming weekend, and it was actually the Thursday before homecoming, and there was a tradition at Dartmouth where they would build a big bonfire, uh. and part of the tradition also is that the upperclassmen try to burn it down, which they almost never do, but they actually had that year. So they'd burned it down in advance of homecoming weekend. The freshmen needed to, I'm sorry, the freshmen build the bond. Almost as some sort of rite of passage. The freshmen have to do it. Freshmen have to build it. The upperclassmen sort of try to burn it down or paint their numbers on it, and the freshmen sleep there to protect it, you know. 
But that particular year, the upperclassmen had actually burnt it down before homecoming weekend. And so I arrived on Thursday, and the whole campus was there trying to build it back up. And so... Including um, those same seniors who burned it down. Oh, yeah. Ev- yeah. Everybody was out there. The, the band was there playing, you know, pep songs from the green, and the um, the radio station had a mobile unit reporting progress from the green on building the bonfire. And there was so much, you know, energy and excitement around it. I thought, wow, this would be a really fun place to go to college. So um, I applied early decision, actually, yeah. and, and never looked back. Uh, so correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Do they still do that? They do still build a bonfire, yeah. Someplace there was a huge bonfire at university, that, and it, it tumbled and, and hurt yeah, some Yes, it was a tragedy, actually. I think it, I think it was one of the Texas universities. Ah, okay. They still yeah. do it at Dartmouth then. They do still do it at Dartmouth, yeah. Um, going into Dartmouth, <laughs> had you thought about what your career would, was going to be in any serious way? I mean, I think we all sort of have ideas when we apply, but um, sometimes it doesn't stick. Actually, I had thought I would probably go into the sciences and, and in particular wanted to go to medical school, I thought, uh-huh. when I started college. Um, I had been really interested in biology when I was uh, growing up. I mean, biology or, or you know, nature, you know, right. being in nature. Right. And um, I had a dissecting kit at home and a microscope at home and was just a, kind of a biology geek. I, and I took AP Bio in high school, and it was it's actually still one of my favorite classes uh-huh. ever. Um, and then when I got to Dartmouth, I thought I, I, thought I was going to be pre-med. And the subject I liked the least was math. And so I thought I would take calculus first and get it out of the way. Uh-huh. And I got a C freshman fall, and I thought, I guess I'm not smart enough to do this. Uh-huh. And I just got discouraged and went in a completely different direction. So did, did not. Business. Yes. So I majored in French, and and uh, political science or government. Um, and eventually, I went to business school. And and luckily, um, over time realized that I could combine that interest in biology, which I've still always had, um, with business. And so luckily ended up, you know, working uh, in biotechnology. You graduated from Dartmouth with a major in French and political science? Yes, correct. And then uh, did you look for work and realize that it's difficult to get a job if you majored in French, or did you go right to the MBA? Well, I went to Bain. Yeah. uh, Oh, in between? Yes. Oh, I didn't know that. After college, yeah. And, um, And... and that was great experience. Um, and actually, in those days, Harvard Business School had a deferred admit program, so you could apply out of college and then defer for two years. Uh-huh. And so that's what I, I had I had been accepted and knew that I would have two years to work. And then and Bain in those days hired a lot of people who had that um, situ in that situation. And so, uh, but while I was at Bain, it was you know great exposure to business. And and luckily, I was assigned to a case team that was working for one of the early biotechnology companies. Which one? And um, it was Genetics Institute that was working with Baxter at the time. Huh. And um, and so I worked on that project, and it, it uh, kind of opened my eyes to um, this aspect of business that I really hadn't um, been so much aware of. You then. could combine those two interests then. Yeah. yeah. And um, then went to business school. Then actually after business school, my husband and I got married, and we went to China for a year. Um, I had studied Chinese in college. I've always loved languages, not just French. <laughs> and and um, so uh, we lived in China in Xi'an in uh, 85, 86, and then came back to the States. Uh, he was at Stanford Business School then, and I got a job, my first biotech job in Palo Alto working for Alza. Alza, right. Okay, mm-hmm. so um, I'm going to back you up a little bit. Yeah. The move to Ohio, mm-hmm. was that for some your, your parents' career or something? Yeah, what, my what father's work. What was yeah. his? What did he do? Um, he worked for Merrill Lynch, and he was in their regional offices, and was transferred to Cleveland, well, first to Akron, then to Cleveland, uh-huh. and then 
back to Manhattan, which is why we then moved to New Jersey when oh, I so was in high school. Oh, so he worked in the city and you guys lived in Jersey. Correct. Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. What did you think of Ohio? Oh, I love it. I have one, wonderful memories of being in Ohio. Uh, you know, it was we lived we lived uh, in the country and um, we had we had animals. I mean, I had I earned my allowance uh, by selling eggs. We had chickens and my father had the scheme that uh, it would be it would be good to uh, basically have to buy the feed out of my revenue and learn the concept of profit. <laughs> so, so the allowance right. was the profit yeah. from the egg business. Um, but uh, but it was it was and and we had chores you know before and after school. Um, but uh, I, I loved living in Ohio. Yeah, that's, great that's, memories. So your father worked at Merrill Lynch. Okay, yeah. he was not he was not a farmer, but correct. Um, he wanted to instill in you this understanding of what that is like. So you had chickens because it was sort of um, you know a way of life that you wanted to experience. And other farm animals. We had horses, um, and my father raised hunting dogs, um, and um, at one point had a goat. But it wasn't a working farm. Yeah. It was more uh, kind of in the in the woods in the country, um, and um, kind of between Akron and Cleveland. Did your father? Grown up on a farm or something? Um, he had grown up in upstate New York, and um, and he and my mother both really liked that uh, that life. I mean, yeah, not not a working farm, but in the country. Yeah, no, no, it's but still a lot, it's a lot of work. I mean, oh, I always think when people talk about the idyllic country life, I think yeah, and it's a lot of work. <laughs> it is. If, well, it's idyllic if you're not doing anything. If yeah. you actually have to run it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, Alza. Yes. That's uh, Alejandro Zaffaroni company. Yes, correct. Did mm-hmm. you know him? I, I met him. You know, I was very, you know, not a, not a, we, he didn't have a lot to do at that time with the running of Alza. Yeah. And so he occasionally came around. Um, so I had an opportunity to met him, but to meet him, but didn't really interact much with him. Yeah. And that company, um, you were there until it was bought by J&J, I think. Uh, no, it was before the company was bought by J&J. Um, uh, and, you know, some years later that that happened. You are fresh out of, fresh out of Harvard. Mm-hmm. They hire you to do, to do what? Well, my job there, first job there was called Manager of Corporate Issues, which was a very kind of ambiguous job title. I think deliberately so. I reported to um, a man, Peter Carpenter, who had responsibility for um, kind of an unusual basket of things, including strategy and kind of special projects. And so I think that uh, it wasn't really clear what the job was going to exactly involve, um, and it involved some of a lot of things, but uh, that was the first position there. And then, um, and then I became director of R and D administration, which was kind of like the sort of the project management associated uh. with, um, you know, coordinating the various functions for projects that were partnered uh, with the suppliers of the drug. It was a drug delivery company, so they yeah. did a lot of partnerships on the, um, the sort of drug and drug delivery device combinations. And then you went to um, genetic therapy. Genetic therapy. That's yeah. right. So how did that happen? Well, I had really well, – so we, we were uh, – my husband finished up at business school, and we decided to move back east. We wanted to be closer to our families. Uh-huh. Our first child was born out there. And we actually tried to get jobs in Pittsburgh, among other places, because mm-hmm. we thought that would be great quality of life. But we ended up um, both getting offers outside of Washington. And um, I had really gotten uh, – I have kind of for a long time had sort of the entrepreneurial bug, as it were. And um, also really liked being in the biotechnology uh, industry. So I was actively looking for early stage or even startup biotech companies that I could join. And I met Jim Barrett, who had recently founded Genetic Therapy. There were about maybe 10 or 12 people there Mm -hmm. um, when I went to interview. And um, 
And it was interesting. It was before uh, gene transfer had been done in humans, and um, they were setting out to try to be, you know, the first company that would get permission to to do that. Um, and and it was just very much the startup phase. I mean, Jim said when he interviewed me, um, I think he wanted to be clear. I really <laughs> set my expectations. He said, he said, you know, I just want to, I just want you to know that you might come to work someday, and the roof might be leaking. And that might be your problem. <laughs> and I said, "Fine, you know, I'll do it. Sign me up." You know. So, but um, they were hiring you as a, sort of a, a project manager again. Uh, well, the job that case was uh, called um, manager of laboratory operations. So you would sort of oversee the labs. Well, so it, again, it was it was an ambiguous um, job definition when I first got there. I did some, I did some accounting work. I did uh, I placed orders. I mean, you know, I mean, so, you know, these kids who just came out of college were working as research associates, and they gave me their order sheet. This is before you did it on a computer. So I personally called up Fisher Scientific, and I said, so you know, we, we need, need pipettes, two boxes need, yeah. of this stock number. Can we please have it by Tuesday? Um, and I did things like, I mean, one of the low points, I will admit, <laughs> when I was, I was uh, organizing the library. So it was, again, before everything was online, and, and we said to all the scientists, bring in all the old journals that you have, and they just brought them in and dumped them in a room, and I personally put them in order on the shelves and then sent around the notes saying, you know, does anyone have May, you know, 1985 yeah. or whatever. Um, but I also got to meet the venture capitalists. I got to be in all the management meetings. Um, you know, eventually that led to um, licensing, uh, where I took responsibility for, you know, we were developing vector systems, but we uh -huh. weren't discovering genes, so yeah. we needed to in-license the the genes, um, so uh, that it, it one thing basically led to another, an expansion of of uh, opportunities in a lot of different ways. And eventually, you know, after the company was sold to Novartis, um, Jim left, and they named me the the CEO. So over the year, over the ten years, I had a lot of different experiences. Okay, so there. Bo both of those early jobs, it, yeah. it almost sounds like they were creating a position f for you. It's you know, it wasn't quite. It's not like you saw an ad and they said, "What mm -hmm. we need is this person." And you applied. Mm -hmm. It's almost like you said, "I want to work there," and they said, "Well." You know, we can build a position that you'll be sort of doing this and a little bit of that. Well, I think that's I think that's sort of true. I mean, I um, I did really want to work in those companies that I, you know, did make the case and was willing to take a job that was poorly defined and just to get and, in there. Yeah, and yeah. so I think um, you know because I didn't I didn't have that science degree, uh -huh. right? So I needed to um, I needed to kind of find a way, maybe not a a typical way to to sort of get in. Um, and to be willing to d be sort of a jack of all trades, and to really be willing to do things like organize the library, um, and um, and so yes, yeah, so luckily you know I met people who were receptive to my enthusiasm. I Your guess. Tenacity. Yeah. <laughs> so ten years mm -hmm. at Genetic yeah. Therapy, mm -hmm. uh, the IPO happens in that time frame, yes. right? And then Novartis. I mean, those are both really mm -hmm. large events in a company's yes. history, yeah. and you, you saw both of them. Yes. Um, you know, what did you take away from that? You, you were not CEO when the IPO happened, correct? Right. Yeah, I ended up doing a lot of different things. I had had a number of different roles at at Genetic Therapy, from which I observed and participated in these milestones. And I will say, at one point, I remember thinking to myself, "Oh, you know, I've done a lot of, I've done a little bit of a lot of things," uh -huh. um, and kind of lamenting that I didn't have maybe, you know, really deep functional experience in one area. Uh, I think, as it turns out, that is actually really good training to um, start a company to, to have had experience in a lot of different areas. Um, 
but it was um i mean they, these were these were that was such an interesting um experience overall from a lot of different perspectives and and I reflect back on it now when I think about the progress that's been made in the gene therapy field um still no approvals in the United States but uh-huh. you know but perhaps on the cusp now some 25 years after the first patient was treated right um so there were there was there was a lot of excitement and we did the first uh, first apu- approved human gene therapy experiment in in the United States at the NIH first a gene marker experiment and then a, a gene therapy experiment in patients with ADA deficiency. That was a you know, milestone in, in many ways and really mm-hmm. exciting to be, to be part of. Um, the IPO was exciting, too. That was an, at another time when there were a lot of companies that were able to get public. It's, it's remarkable. I think the GTI IPO raised something like $13 million. <laughs> it was not a lot of money in the, in the scheme of IPOs today. But... Um, but same amount of work. I mean, we had to, you know, right. do the S one, go yep. on the road show, yep. and all that, and and so it was momentous for the company. And we did, uh, I think, three or four um, follow-ons before the company was bought by Novartis. So you know, to live to see to see that, and to see the uh, broadening um, clinical trials that were then done, not not only by us but by others as well in the in the gene therapy area, was also really interesting. Then. Novartis came in. Um, initially, we had a partnership with Sandoz, uh, which was on a, a um, brain tumor product, kind of a complicated, interesting product. It was actually retroviral vector producer cells mm-hmm. that were implanted into the brain of a patient after the tumor was resected. And the producer cells, live cells, would generate vector that contained the gene for thymidine kinase, which then could be killed after the patients were given. Any cell that took that up would then be killed mm-hmm. with, again, cyclovir, which was given after the um, after the surgery. So it was kind of a complicated but very um, sophisticated biological uh, attempt to treat glioblastoma, which failed. But we partnered that with Sandoz, and, um, and through that partnership, Sandoz got to know the company and then eventually... It was actually Sandoz that acquired GTI and then very quickly merged with SIBA. So oh, then we became yeah. a subsidiary right. of Novartis. Okay. I was wondering how that purchase came about. No, I think it was, I mean, for, for many years, it was one of the only um, companies that made money for investors in the gene therapy space. Yeah. I mean, now, of course, there's, there are more. Yeah, plenty, right. Um, but it was, uh, you know, it was, I think, considered a very successful uh, transaction. And... An interesting opportunity. I think we all thought that um, it was going to be more straightforward to develop genetic therapies than it has turned out to be. Um, And particularly, I think we all thought that for single gene defects, you know, like hemophilia or cystic fibrosis, it would be easier um, than it proved to be. Um, And we also thought there were going to be a lot of opportunities in oncology, particularly in what at the time was the early attempts at immunotherapy, none of which panned out as quickly as everybody had hoped. So we, so we thought that the, you know, the, to be part of a major pharma company, I think, would be beneficial to, to both. Um, but, um, but, you know, it still has not... Uh, well, it never, I mean, it never does, right? That's yeah. the thing we can learn mm-hmm. after watching biotech industry for however long. It mm-hmm. always takes longer than you think it's going yeah. to. Oh, and I think, you know, there had to be initial steps, right? I mean, and I think as a, as a field, you know, collectively, we had to learn things about, about vector development, about gene transfer, you know, more sophistication around the biology in general and, and the, uh, the delivery technology. So 
I think you know the field had to go through its early days, right? Um, and it's certainly really exciting for me now to see to see it continuing to advance and hopefully towards some approvals. Yeah. Um, so after the acquisition, mm-hmm. you, you stayed on. You ran the subsidiary. Yes. So then Jim Barrett left, and he was the founder. At and, the acquisition, he left. Uh, shortly after the acquisition. And then I had actually been, before the acquisition, I was vice president for product planning, which meant that I was working closely with the team from Novartis on the um, implementation of that brain tumor study. So Mm -hmm. I got to have a lot of exposure to the Sandoz and then the Novartis Development Organization and so knew the people. And it was, a, I think, maybe a natural progression to then run GTI as a subsidiary of Novartis. It was a challenging transition, I think. Um, you know, they they always are, <laughs> in my experience and in what I've heard, that um, as much as, uh, you know, the acquirer and the company being acquired, you know, you come with your your goals for what it's going to look like after the acquisition happens. But I think they're, they're always challenging um, yeah. to implement. And in that case, um, uh, you know, we had been a management team running an independent, publicly held company on our own. And... Um, and I think uh, it was very challenging for a lot of us to then realize that we had, you know, a lot of someone. people we had to yeah. answer to. Um, we needed approvals for things that we had not needed approvals for in the past. And and we had to figure out a whole new um, system for getting things done. And so um, over time, most of the other members of the management team left. Um, and I did stay. And um, I think it, it turned out to be a great opportunity for me also to then learn you know, what it's like to be part of a larger uh, organization. So, um, you know, I'm grateful th- for that experience, too. Um, I eventually left uh, GTI when uh, Novartis made a decision to consolidate GTI with another, with the operations of GTI with the operations of a company called Systemics, which they had acquired on the West Coast. They were, they were a, an early um, stem cell company. Um, at technology out of Stanford, and they also had some gene therapy work. And so the the um, the work that was being done at that time was complementary. I think it made sense for them to be consolidated. But um, unfortunately, uh, it led to me also being in a position of having to lay off about a third of our workforce at genetic therapy. We had about maybe 200 and some people at the time, so we had to lay off about 75 people all at once, which was extremely challenging difficult. So how did you um, how did you do that? Well, let's back up a little bit. When mergers like this happen, the, the one that's being acquired often, I mean, morale really sags. Did you find that was the case for the employees at GTI? Um, I wouldn't say that morale sagged, although, I mean, everybody could speak to that from their own perspective. I think um, first people get anxious, right, because right. we wonder about the changes. Um, in the short term, you know, um, actually, Novartis continued to invest in in uh, GTI, and it, in fact, to the point of building a beautiful new building, um, f- you know, for our uh, research activities, and and really, you know, continuing to grow our activities, uh-huh. um, and so, so that was exciting. I think for for people, there was also, um, on the other hand, I think some people would have said there was a new reporting burden, because we did have more frequent reporting. And um, to people not on site, so the communication was more challenging um, compared to being a small company. Um, and so, you know, we all had to had to kind of work it through. A number of people from GTI eventually moved into Novartis, um, into the um, the research facility that was then built in, at Cambridge, in Boston. And um, so, I think people had some 
good opportunities. However, in the in the fairly near term, eventually they shut the whole thing down. Um, so there's uh, that site was entirely closed, as I believe was the uh, systemic site eventually. Uh, so they named you. CEO. Yes. And then how soon after that were they like, you now need to go lay off 75 workers? Oh, it was about two years. Yeah. So how did you manage that as, you know, the CEO? How did you, that's, I assume your first experience doing that. Yes. And uh, it was it was very difficult. First of all, there was the period of um, trying to convince Novartis not to do it, you know, and that went on for months. And um, how so? there like, was, well, there was, a, there was um, the decision to consolidate the operations between what was going on at, at GTI and Systemics. And um, and so we needed to um, figure out how to do that. And um, uh, you know, I felt that we should be consolidated at our uh, site right. in yeah. Gaithersburg. The people at Systemics wanted to be consolidated out in in California. Um, and so you know, in that whole um, you know work up to the final decision, which was that most of the um, uh, development functions were going to be consolidated in. Palo Alto, we would continue just research in Maryland. Up until that point, there was a lot of, you know, trying to make the case, uh-huh. which I was not successful in trying to get the development located in um, Maryland. Then, um, actually, it was a very, it was a really interesting experience to go through the layoff itself because, you know, I, I mean, I had been there for ten years. I knew I knew the people, um, and some of them quite well. And, um, you know, the the normal way that a lot of layoffs were done, and I think maybe still are done is that you know some people recommend you you know bring the people who are going to be laid off into a room and you tell them that day one on one well well or some people even say to I've I've even heard people doing it as a group when right. there's a big layoff and they and then people get till you know noon to empty out their desk and then they're gone and I really did not want to do that and yeah. I remember I I do remember having to really make this case to the people at Novartis, which they did eventually agree to, that um, I wanted to do it in a way that I thought was more uh, respectful uh, and really reflected the fact that, you know, people had been dedicated and putting their lives to it. And and I think a lot of times people think there's a risk that, you know, people are going to, our employees are going to abscond with something or they're going to sabotage or something. And I thought, well, you know, I I really felt that was a low risk. Anyway, so so what we did was um, as soon as I knew that um, the decision was made that we were going to consolidate with um, and and move functions, um, I had a company meeting and and I said, this decision has been made. Um, The following groups here are the most likely to be affected. We don't have a detailed plan yet, but we're working on that. We expect to have that in this time frame. Um, it is going to result in a layoff. Um, when we know that the layoff is going to happen, you know, we'll set a date for that, and I will tell you in advance what the date is so everybody will know whatever the date is going to be layoff day. Um, and you know, we'll communicate as this process unfolds. And I think people appreciated knowing that. You know, there was there was uncertainty anyway. People knew that there was a, you know, some possibility of. But of what that meeting does, it, it sort of that already throws a flag up, mm-hmm. and so people can start to begin to at least mentally prepare that it might be them. Yeah. Right. They might. They better get their resume yes. in shape, and then when the actual word comes down, it is going to be you, and you have I don't know six weeks, what, however long. Yeah. They're a little more prepared. So. Yeah, that people would be more prepared, and that people would be, you know, treated with more respect, and that and it would be more. You know, we we had formed kind of a community, I think, at the company, and that 
that the community together would kind of be going through this. Because I also think, and I do believe this very strongly, that when you have a big layoff like that, the people who stay pay a lot of attention to how the people who leave get treated. Yeah. And so I think that it's, you know, you can't think to yourself as a manager that you're going to treat some people one way and then you're going to treat other people the other way. And, and they won't you know. know. And, and that you tell people we're going to say one group you're going to lay you off and tell the other group, you know, we love you so much that they're not going to feel the love, you know. Right. So, um, so I really, you know, went through that. It was very, it was very challenging. But I think in the end people did appreciate it and there was no, you know, we had no sabotage or any kind of negative events. And, um, so, but did so, you actually do the one-on-one when it came time? Well, then when it came time to – so then we ended up um, – yeah, so we set a date. I, I can't remember what day it actually was. We said, okay, next Tuesday is layoff day. And um, and then we did have um, people meet individually with their supervisor or if the supervisor was being laid off, they met with the relevant vice president um, and and one-on-one had yeah. the um, individual communications, yeah. Okay, so then you were you were still there. After. Well, actually, I also lost my job. Oh, you did? Okay. <laughs> yes, because it turned out that the, um, you know, the it was there wasn't a need for a CEO function um, at uh, at genetic therapy anymore. It was more of a research organization. Right. Um, but um, I did have uh, I had become very interested in um, the interface between complicated science and the public, and actually. Uh, gene therapy turned out to be a really good example mm-hmm. of how you need the public support, even though the public doesn't understand really what you're what you're talking about a lot of the time, because there was this tragic event at uh, University of Pennsylvania where a patient died in a gene therapy protocol. Jesse Gelsinger. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, anyway, I, I had become very interested in um, in that kind of communication issue, uh, and Novartis gave me the chance to run their um, Washington office and corporate communications for the U.S. So kind of the outside. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Bombas. 
Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Face of, of Nevada. So um so I was given an opportunity to move into that role. Um knowing that I'd be leaving GTI, there really wasn't a role um, of a CEO type person there. Mm-hmm. So how was that, the new position? Um, you know, it was really interesting. Um, I um, I was not uh, such a political junkie. You know, a lot of people who run Washington offices are really political junkies. Yeah. Um, and so maybe to be a little bit politically naive actually was kind of a good thing in some ways because I came in with a lot of enthusiasm. And I, I, and I felt like the, um, you know, it, it, there were times when I, I felt like I just couldn't believe that I was getting paid to talk to um, interesting people about things that I thought were really important. And there were there were a lot of times when I felt like that was what my job was. And in, and lobbying really is that yeah. in its in its best form. Right. Um, and um, and the portfolio that Novartis had at that time was also really interesting. We had gene therapy, cell therapy, xenotransplantation, agricultural biotechnology. Um, Seba Vision, Gerber Baby Food, pharmaceuticals. Um, so it was quite a, you know, diverse port- portfolio of things, um, and so it was it was interesting. I um, and I think actually it turns out great background for my role now as board, board chair at Bio, yeah, okay. um, because I really came to appreciate the um, the possible impact. I, I appreciate the, the the difference that policy really makes. Um, so coming into it, it was it was very interesting. I um, enjoyed it. I did it for two and a half years, and then I just I realized, you know, that was enough. Um, I wanted to be back in a small company environment, and and so that was when I left and then went to NEA. Okay. So, but who? When you say you were addressing the public, who? Well, so so I, I guess when I say that the, the public, I mean I was interested in the um, the general issue of needing to get public support for um, difficult and complex um, scientific innovation that we were doing in, in um, biotechnology. Um, it, you know, my specific role in, the, in running the Washington office was more engaging with policymakers. That makes sense. Yeah. So NEA, mm-hmm. um, they had been an investor in genetic therapy, yes, right? Yes, exactly. So, so you already had mm-hmm. some relationship with them? Mm-hmm. And then, so is this where you went in and you said, I want to work for you, and they formed a position for you and hired you? Well, so um, so I went to, to actually to Chuck Newhall, who was one of the founders of NEA, and he had been on our board at, at uh, Genetic Therapy. And Genetic Therapy was one of the first NEA investments back when NEA was small, uh-huh. you know, before they got to be the huge yeah. megalith that they are now. And um, so I went to Chuck, and, and they had, so NEA had... Um, continued to basically do both tech and biotech investing, um, which was unusual because it takes such different skills to do each of those well. And the tech bubble had um, burst, and NEA had just raised their first billion-dollar fund, which mm-hmm. was going to—and they were going to increase their uh, biotech investments. And I went, I went to Chuck, actually, asking if he could give me leads on companies that I could go into, uh, an NEA company. And um, and he basically said, well, we don't have any. I don't have any companies right now per se, but um, maybe you could come and be an entrepreneur in residence. And he said, we've actually just hired a new general partner for our 
big fund, and if you could convince that person that you could work well together, then maybe you could work with him and um, help us do diligence on on uh, deals for that new fund and, and work up a project that might be a company that you could run. And I said, sure, who is it? And he said, it's Jim Barrett. And uh, I no said, problem. great, <laughs> you know, I'll see if I can talk him into it. <laughs> and so, uh, so again, and I think, you know, one thing I, I see when I look back on my career is I do find myself attracted to situations where there's a lot of ambiguity in what the job actually is going to require. Um, and I mean, that was, that's, True in almost every job I've I've had. Why do you think that um, is? Do you think that's because I, I don't know? I could see it being attractive because then you don't. It, it seems like the sky's the limit. I'm going to yeah. do all these interesting things versus, yeah. you know, when you come and you're going to do this every single day. Do you think that's it? I, I think it's. I do have. I do feel like I have what I might describe as an entrepreneurial bent, meaning, and, and I think by that I mean that I like to do um, things that are new that maybe haven't been done before, haven't been done quite in the way that I might want to do them. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also think that um, it may be that I'm attracted to situations of high ambiguity because I like to plan. So, you know, I'd like to um, develop uh, plans and, and structures around things, but uh, but also, you know, do things that are really uh, innovative and new. So... Anyway, so I did go to go to NEA, and um, and that was a that was another great opportunity. Although it's funny, you know, people um, I've had a lot of people say to me in the years since then, and when I was still there, boy, I want to be an entrepreneur in residence too. And I said, and I say it was a fabulous, absolutely fabulous opportunity um, to be on the inside of a of a fund like NEA, which has such talented people. You know, they get incredible deal flow. Um, it was it was great to you know to spend some time kind of under that um, kind of in the shadow of this of this great uh, venture fund, um, and I was on a really short leash. You know, I had a I had I was ended up being there for um, I guess almost a year and a half by the time we funded Glycomimetics. But um, I had a three month contract. Um, I was not paid a lot of money to do it. Um, and by the end of it, I was on a month-to-month contract. You know, so yeah, there's no. I'm telling people there's no job stability there. You know, you mean but by your decision, or no, theirs? no, by NEA's decision. Ah, I mean, okay. NEA. Uh, I don't know how they have done it with other EIRs, but you know, it was a, it's a, it was a short-term thing that that was extended through the eventual financing of Glycomimetics. But fabulous, um, just incredible opportunity for which I'm really, really grateful. Um, but I think some people looking at the outside might. Might think it's it's more of a stable long term kind of arrangement, but you know, in their opportunity to try to make something of it, and then you know, you got to be out. So that you saw glycomimetics and thought that's the one, and you started building it as part of NEA. Well, so what I did, you know, I, I was working um, with Jim Barrett, right. um, doing diligence on deals that that NEA was looking at, and I was looking for what might be my deal. Right. You know, a deal that would come in that needed a CEO, um, and I was also out. Um, looking for interesting technology um, that I might build a deal around. Mm-hmm. Um, in that context, I was introduced to John Mignani, who is now our chief scientific officer at Glycomimetics. And he had been running a company called Glycotech himself. He'd run it for 10 years. And um, he had run it through um, basically a reagents business, um, some grant funding, and through a research collaboration with Siba Geige. Mm-hmm. And had kept it all going, um, but he had gotten to the point where he realized he wanted to 
take it to another level and really try to develop drugs out of out of the technology. Um, I became really uh, converted to uh, to thinking about the carbohydrate space as being one that had a lot of opportunity. Mm-hmm. And um, so together, he and I put together a business plan, um, which NEA backed, and we were able to get some other investors that came in uh, early on as well. So then you were done with the EIR position, yep. just with NEA. Okay. Yeah. So let's uh, two things I want to talk about, and then we can sort of broaden this. One is, um, I'm not sure when you began uh, your association with Bio. It was for emerging companies first, right? Uh, yeah, so um, my actual, my first involvement with Bio, which was brief, was uh, when I was at Genetic Therapy, and I was briefly on the board as the Novartis representative, oh, actually, okay. as in my role as CEO of, of um, GTI, then came off, um, then uh, went back in uh, after we founded Glycomimetics, and I was on the Emerging Companies board, then was eventually vice chair of that, and then chair of Emerging Companies section. And did you go to them, or did they come to you? Um, when I originally went back on... Um, I went to them, and then um, it was Steve Sherwin who was going to become chair of emerging companies who asked me if I would be his vice chair. Okay, so w- when you went to them, I mean, did mm. you feel you didn't have enough to do running glycomimetics that you oh. now wanted to do this as well? <laughs> um, well, I I had had, um, I had really enjoyed being involved with bio, even though it was briefly through my associate at GTI, and and I just I wanted to be involved. I mean, I, I think it's important uh, what bio does. Um, I had become convinced, as I mentioned, when I was doing the Novartis Washington office work, yeah. that you know policy matters and um, incentives matter. And um, and so I thought it was it was important. And it's also a great way to um, to network with uh, with other people in the uh, in the biotech community. So I've always loved that aspect of bio. You know, to, I, I look forward to the meetings, yeah. um, to be with the people uh, that are also on the board. It's a, great, it's a great community to be a part of. So I wanted to be part of it again. Okay. okay. And so then glycomimetics. Mm-hmm. Um, you can correct me where I'm wrong here. You have a, a phase two drug, uh, vasoclusive uh, crisis. Correct. That's partnered, I think, with Pfizer. Yes, correct. And then you have a phase one for leukemia. Correct. And maybe preclinical for undecided cancers yet. Yes, like that. that's correct. Mm-hmm. Okay. So um, let's Take me through building this company from the ground up, what that's been like. Well, it's been really hard to finance, I'll tell you that. <laughs> we had, um, when we decided, and it's it's interesting now because orphan diseases are hot and sickle yeah. cell disease is hot, um, but when we we had a technology um, around the selectins, right, which is a family of adhesion molecules, mm-hmm. and when we first started trying to raise money around that, some investors said, oh, we've seen this before. This has already been tried and failed. It's not a good target. Um, there were some companies, um, uh, Cytel and Glycomed, um, in some maybe it's been fifteen, maybe even twenty years ago now that had, had that had tried and failed with other approaches to successfully um, target the selectins and and deliver some kind uh-huh. of meaningful clinical data. So the first rap was, oh, those aren't good targets. Um, another concern was that carbohydrate chemistry is complicated, and it is complex, but um, some people, some investors said, oh, it's, it's you know, too complicated. Um, and, um, and then when we, so we had some challenges around our technology. When we decided to apply the technology to sickle cell disease, then we had a lot of people tell us uh, that, you know, 
sickle cell disease is too complicated an indication to go after. It's um, heterogeneous patient population. And there is complexity. There is heterogeneity. I acknowledge that. But um, we were really discouraged from, um, from going into, into sickle cell disease. Another thing which people said, and this proved very important and interesting when we got to our final phase two, our eventual phase two readout, a number of investors said to us, sickle cell patients are a lot of them drug addicts because they take so much narcotics that you're never going to be able to tease out your effect against a background of um, drug addiction. I've never heard that. Well, sickle cell patients, I think, a lot of times are stigmatized, and I think this is true. They're stigmatized because um, they come into the hospital emergency rooms, Many of them, most of them African-Americans, uh-huh. and the only relief that they can get now is with uh, narcotics. So they come in asking for narcotics because of the intense pain, the debilitating pain that they suffer in, in these crises. And, um, and so it's true that even some in the medical community um, stigmatize them. So one of the things that we saw in our phase two study actually um, was that um, in a randomized, double-blinded, placebo-controlled study where patients controlled the use of their own narcotics, we had an 83% reduction in narcotic use when patients were getting our drug that was statistically significant, mm-hmm. even in a very small um, study, which vindicates the patients, actually, yeah. that they're not, you know, in that in that uh, study, you can see that's not the behavior of people who are using drug, drug addictively, yeah, right? right? They're, they're, they're using it to control pain. their pain. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it was, it, but that was one of the, one of the, um, Challenges in fundraising, so it was it was challenging uh, to go after that, um, but we felt that that was uh, it was an unmet need where we felt that biological target was highly relevant, where we also thought that if we were successful, the therapy could be transformative, um, and so that was what we'd chosen. Um, so, but there were a lot of challenges around that. Another challenge was, you know, we when we raised our Series C, which was an important um, fund for us because we also brought Genzyme Ventures into that round. Mm-hmm. Um, because they liked the sickle cell program. So we got some validation from someone who really understood the rare disease space uh, in that. And um, we raised that fund thinking that we would be able to use that money to complete the phase two study, which took longer than we had hoped. And so we were faced with the the problem of um, basically running out of money before the study was done. And so, you know, on, on one hand, we could have basically, you know, laid off practically everybody but a skeleton crew to just try to get that study done mm-hmm. or uh, try to partner it in order to bring in funding so that we could we could keep some other programs uh, advancing. And we decided to do the latter. And um, by that time, orphan diseases had gotten hot. We had multiple companies that were interested in it. Sickle cell made a lot of sense to, mm-hmm. to people. So we ended up getting multiple term sheets for that deal, but uh, did the deal with Pfizer. Um, and they've been a good partner for us. Um, so lots of challenges along the way, but um, but there's been a lot of challenges. Actually, another challenge I should I should probably talk about in that uh, on that subject is the challenge of getting company public, um, because uh, we actually went out um, the first time to try to get public and were not successful in in doing that. Um, we we went out, so we got our we got our phase two data in the spring of 2013, and um, we and that was it was heating up to be a really good year for biotech IPOs. Yep. Um, but we couldn't 
actually go public unless we knew that Pfizer was going to take it forward. We, and we were talking to bankers, and they said, you know, you, data's great, but we need to have Pfizer commitment. Um, so we got the Pfizer commitment in, I think, June. And then in July, right after the 4th of July, we did the org meeting to try to uh, start drafting documents. And we were racing to get the company public in that fall. Um, but the other issue that we had was, you know, we wanted to submit the data to ASH. Uh -huh. So we needed to preserve the the fact that it would be new at ASH at the right. same time that we needed to put top-line data in the S1 so that investors would know that what they were getting, right? right. So, um, so we put top-line data in the S1. Uh, we heard from investors during the roadshow that they really wanted to see the abstracts. We, we expected that, the public abst abstracts. Um, and um, so we, we basically timed the roadshow so that we would be pricing uh, a day or two after the abstracts came out, which was in November. Um, and so we went on the roadshow and um, started off great, but as we, as we kept going, you know, we started seeing that the biotech index was actually trading down yeah. for the first time that year. Yeah. And um, we were starting to hear from investors that there was more, from our bankers, that the investors were putting more price pressure on deals. And then we started to hear people are, quote, putting their pencils down, which was a very bad thing. Yeah. And what time <laughs> and of the year is this? This, this was is November okay. of 2013. Right. Right. And, um, and so we finished the roadshow, and then we met with the bankers um, at the very end of it in New York. And, and I remember they... We were all, we were there with our whole team, and uh, and they asked if the, if the CFO and I could please come into the other room privately and <laughs> talk to them, yeah. which is not a good sign. And so um, we went in there, and they told us, you know, we, we just can't put the book together, and so we had to we had to um, you know postpone, and um, and we were the first of I think seven or eight companies that ended up postponing at the end of that year. I remember that, yeah. I mean, mm -hmm. there's usually a slowdown at the end of the year anyway, right? Yeah. I mean, people begin to sit on their their gains mm -hmm. for the year. So what happened in 2014? Have you addressed this? Well, well. so um, then, so that was November. Then ASH happened, and we presented our data, and it was chosen for as best of ASH that year, It was, which I'm so proud of. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's thousands of things going on at ASH, and, and they choose a very small number to, to be highlighted as best of ASH. So we were really pleased with that. We also had an end-of-phase two meeting with the FDA that helped to give some visibility into what was uh, planned for phase three. Mm -hmm. And so, and I knew that everybody was going to be teeing up their IPOs at J.P. Morgan. Right. And so I said to the bankers, we really, really want to see if we could do this before J.P. Morgan. And their initial reaction was, that's, that's going to be really hard. It's in hard. between, you know, the start of the year and, yeah. you know, 10 days in or whatever. Exactly. And so, um, so they said, well, you know, if everything were to line up perfectly, it could happen. But... You know, we need to get anchor an anchor order. We need to, you know, get around, update everybody in the meantime, and, you know, it's going to be hard. So I actually personally took the list of people we'd gone to on the road trip, personally called them up, um, and um, and we set up calls then during December, so a lot of them over the holidays with our management team and with these, you know, investors that we thought we were just trying to, trying to generate interest with. Um, and... Um, and then the bankers were following up to, you know, to see would anybody step up as an anchor order, and we did. So, that, so then we went to to work on that first Monday after New Year's, um, 
with our bags, not knowing if we would go to New York that afternoon or not. Um, and we did, did a call around noon, and, and uh, the banker said, yep, actually, we got an anchor order. We can, we can do the deal. So went to New York. We did two more days of marketing, and we closed before J.P. Morgan. You did. So it was oh, the first. Amazing. That's how it got to be the first IPO of, of, the of year. 2014. So yeah. we actually have a big, a big sign in our lobby. Um, NASDAQ put a big thing up on their um, marquee saying, you know, NASDAQ welcomes Glycometics, the first IPO of 2014, which was very cool. That's nice, yeah. Um, but, you know, so we, we have it up there, and, you know, sometimes people, you know, visitors come and, and admire it, and I say to myself, you have well, no you idea yeah. <laughs> what, what that took. Don't recommend uh, so, doing it the way that we you know, did it. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, but I think, that, you know, it's it's rare, and I think, too, you know, I've I've, I've – made this point in a couple of talks I've given. You know, if you look at sort of the outside story of a lot of biotechnology companies, and ours is true also, you see, well, we did, you know, a series of raises privately. You know, we made progress over the years. We did a partnership with a pharma company. We took the company public. You know, you see a, 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 a sort of a steady stream of, of events. But, you know, in the background, the reality is, you know, that – you know, things don't go according to plan. You've got yeah. to be constantly adjusting and, um, uh, you know, rejiggering the plan um, and being willing to, and able to persevere through things that sometimes are very – or through events that sometimes are very are very challenging. Um, I mean, for us, the luckiest thing was, you know, turning over that data card for the Phase two study that it was positive. Yeah. Um, you know, we were able to carry forward. <laughs> Both through your work with bio and emerging mm-hmm. companies, your own experience, mm-hmm. uh, if you were to have advice for people who are starting mm-hmm. companies today, um, mm-hmm. you know, what would that advice be? Well, this kind of generic advice and specific advice, right? You know, the generic advice, I think, which is always true, is, you know, work with the best people you can. Um, and that's one thing I, I observed when I was at NEA, too. You know, they would... Um, be talking. I observed partners talking with other partners about deals, and you know it'd be sort of well, what's the deal, or you know what's the concept here? And then the, you know the first critical question is well, who, is who are the people yeah. who who are doing this deal? Um, so I think people are are um, you know absolutely critical, and and you know again this sounds simple, but um, you need excellent science, and you need to really follow where that leads you. Um, when we first started looking at the the selectins as a biological target. Sickle cell was not on our radar screen, um, but we continued to explore and do more studies and, you know, followed that there was, I think there's a good business reason for sickle cell, but there was a very strong biological rationale, similar to what we're doing now in cancer. Mm-hmm. I think um, the um, we have continued to study the role that the selectins play, particularly in the cancer uh, microenvironment in the bone marrow. For example, and um, uh, and the data has really continued to be very exciting. So follow the follow the science. The way you've described your mm-hmm. your path, your career path, there's something to be said for um, y- you know the sort of tenacity that you've shown. Like mm-hmm. you're going in. This is where I want to work, and I'm going to go in there, whether there's a position for me or not, and sort of mm-hmm. offer my services until you know that position is almost available, or you mm-hmm. grow into the position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we and perseverance. Um, I mean, so if someone is certainly if someone is trying to find a job in biotechnology, yeah, you're going to have to knock on a lot of doors. I think you know most people have to knock on a lot of doors. Um, I mean, we had one case where I remember we were doing one of our of our raises, and we were at an at a venture fund, and we had a terrible meeting. We just had a terrible meeting at this at this fund, and we walked out, and one of the people on our team said, "Well." 
you know, um, you know what they say, you've you got to meet with 40 people before you get one yes. So the good news is, you know, 39 That's to go, right? right? Only 39 right. to go. But uh, so, yeah, tenacity is, is certainly um, important. And uh, I mean, in, in so many, so many respects, because again, things often don't go, don't go according to plans. What are the few things, if you can come up with any, that you feel like the industry needs to do to progress? Um, as far as I, I'm considering things like policy and, and addressing mm-hmm. the public. Mm-hmm. Well, there are a lot of things that we, that we need to do. I, you know, I think one of the biggest issues that we're going to need to solve, I think, as a society, is how to ensure that we can continue to, to develop these innovative therapies and that people get access to them. Yeah. Um, and we saw just coming out of this week's ASCO meeting that um, discussion about pricing, which right. I think is just getting more and more acute. And um, so... Um, what can we do as an industry through policy and through our own work to continue to streamline clinical trials and and drug development? Um, And you see some of this effort now in the 21st Century Cures Bill that's working its way through Congress Congress, and some of the things we do with PDUFA negotiations. What can we do to, to streamline that so that we can hopefully rationalize the cost to develop drugs, which hopefully would be reflected um, to some degree in pricing. You know, we also have the the challenge of um, defining, describing the the value of drugs. You know, we like to make the case that drugs are priced for their value. Um, I think the challenge we have, frankly, is that in a in a business where the you know from an economic standpoint, the demand curve, so to speak, is is not elastic. You know, we have we have uh, almost infinite demand for life saving therapies because we appropriately value human life so much, yeah. right? Um, so you don't have the normal pricing pressures that you have if you're selling, you know, bicycles or something. Um, so we have to we have to find ways to, um, and at the same time, our, you know, our system can't afford to have expensive drug layered on expensive drug. Um, so we have to find ways to, um, to address those issues. We do have a very successful, um, you know, generic industry in this country. And so generics here are actually cheaper than they are other parts of the world. Yeah. So that, that part of the system works. But I think to work through those, um, those development issues and the access issues, I think it's going to be really key. Let me put this out there. Uh, for, when, when you th- talk about this industry versus other industries, mm-hmm. for, for example, selling bikes, if, if a customer sees a bike that they mm-hmm. want, they consider the price and, and they buy the bicycle or not. Mm-hmm. If a customer, and I'm, you know, a patient being a customer, came across a drug that they needed and saw the price without insurance involved, they wouldn't buy the product. They couldn't mm-hmm. afford the product. Right. And it's one of the few industries where that actually operates in this way. Do you think that yeah. it's sort of inherently broken because it's built that way? Well, well, it's insurance. I mean, that's the – so what you're describing – is an, is it's an it's the insurance model, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I I mean I still believe in the insurance model um, because you know we all pay a little bit so that some don't have to pay a lot, a lot right. right? So I do believe in the insurance model. Um, so I don't think it's it's that per se that's broken, but I think um, you know we're going to have to we're going to have to probably address this from a number of different um, perspectives. It is this is a different this is is funda- so fundamentally such a different business than than others um, yeah. because of the um, potential impact that we have on human life and on quality of life. And it's, um, I think that's what makes it such a privilege uh, to work in because we do have that, that potential. And I think that also speaks to some of the passion that a lot of us bring to it um, as we do the, as we do this work. Um, but that also brings special challenges in terms of, of solving these issues of access. So I think, you know, I don't know 
what exactly the answer is going to yeah. be. I know we're t- addressing it from a number of different perspectives, but I think you know most of us, if not all of us, working in the industry, I think passionately want to develop the drugs and also passionately want people to have access, access to them. To them. Um, one, do, you have, do you have kids? Yes, we do. How many? Two. And uh, do you have chickens? <laughs> no chickens. You're not doing that for them? <laughs> no. How, how old are the kids? Actually, chil- our children are both not children anymore. Our son is 27 and our daughter's 25. What do they do? Well, I, actually, our daughter teaches second grade uh-huh. um, in a, a charter school in North Carolina. And uh, and so she is she's working very hard with... Uh, in a very challenging uh, educational environment with uh, uh, youth of America, need, needful kids, mm-hmm. um, and our son actually did just finish medical school, so he oh, is he, he is uh, in the the sciences, so to speak, and about to start a residency in orthopedic surgery. Oh, fun! It's been great. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. That is the end of this podcast and the end of the studio. Uh, the usual round of thanks. Thanks to Rachel King for her time. Thank you to the Midwest Quiet for use of this music. Thank you to listeners. It's my most sincere thanks, I think. And that's it. I will talk to you guys on the next one. Goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. 
No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.